Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail and the host of this podcast. This week, I'm really excited. We have Patrick Kreitzer, who's the CEO of the Tillamook Creamery, and I'm just really stoked to talk about the business of dairy. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Kale. Full disclosure, I was really happy when I heard that we're going to have you on because I I went to school in Oregon. I know your products pretty well. I ate them for many years, and I've been to uh, the factory, and so... um, It's something that's very near and dear to my heart, so I'm excited to have you on. But for those who don't know, I always ask everyone, uh, Tillamook's a pretty old company, so what's the sort of abridged story behind Tillamook uh, and and what you've been doing? Yeah, there's lots of history here after 112 years, but I'll do it briefly. Um, (laughs) Essentially, in 1909, there were a bunch of uh, dairy farmers out in this small county on the coast of Oregon making uh, making cheese, and they all came together and formed the Tillamook County Creamery Association, stamped the name of the community on the rind of the cheese, and that's when the brand started. So 112 years later, uh, we're, we're still going strong, still a farmer-owned cooperative, um, and rapidly growing across the United States. Talk to me a little about the national expansion, because I feel like that's something that you've been focusing on late. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, in the in 2018, we decided to take our products nationally and, and seek national distribution. This followed a, a couple other phases of growth, uh, starting back in 2013 and 14, where we did some work internal to the company to get prepared to be able to uh, you know, make good on our, our consumer promise and our retail partnerships. And then in 2014, we launched what we called Win the West, where we sought to establish the Tillamook brand as the premium multi-category dairy brand in the Western United States, sort of proving out the model a little bit before we expanded nationally. And then in 2018, we um, launched a national expansion, um, approached uh, retailers about gaining distribution in, you know, west of the or east of the Rockies. Sorry, we at that time in 2000, late 2017, we 95% of our sales were east of the Rocky Mountains, or sorry, west of the Rocky Mountains. And so um, we began that expansion in 2018 and, and have grown pretty substantially since. So how do you approach like, the the over like the factory process did you have to get invested new machinery more more cows what was that process of of expanding nationally when you're dependent on agriculture and you know so so many animals to produce your products absolutely so over the years leading up to our national expansion we had invested in capacity in our cheese making process and so we were prepared to to meet demand that's been tested a little bit uh in 2000 and 2020 when with a lot more at-home consumption we've seen uh, a pretty uh, significant increase in sales and demand for our products but we've been able to keep up just fine and so we fortunately had invested ahead of the national expansion in capacity to make more tillamook cheese and other products how much of your sales is east of the Rockies compared to west of the Rockies now? Uh, we're about uh, 10 to 15 percent east of the Rockies, so we're still pretty significantly west, um, but that's it's growing quite rapidly. We, in, in fact, uh, this last year, uh, we added 4.6 million households, some in the west, but mostly um, in the eastern United States. And uh, just since our national expansion started, um, we've added almost 200,000 points of distribution uh, across the uh, across the West in, in 9,000 retail locations. So um, certainly a lot of expansion happening there. Wow. And so I want to get into the, the last year, but I also, 
when you're, you know, when you're a, a localized company that has, I mean, Tillamook, you know, I was, it was 2000, the early 2010s when I was there, um, late 2000s. And everyone knows what Tillamook is. It's a, it's a local company that has uh, a real, it has a real presence um, in Oregon, at least. So how do you approach that kind of branding nationally? Like what were the retail partners you were looking for? How do you, how do you sort of go about becoming a more national brand when you're already a pretty well-established regional one? Well, that's a great question, Kaylin. And, and so I, I joined the company in 2012 as, as a CEO. And one of the things that I wanted to be very careful about was, yeah, we had some growth aspirations, but we really wanted to build on the strengths that were already there. And so there's, you know, a hundred, almost a hundred years at that point of history in, uh, in, in, in doing, in, in the way we make products and the way the businesses run and in our sensibilities around relationships with consumers. And in particular, that's based on, as you mentioned, the Pacific Northwest. We have a, uh, actually a visitor center. You mentioned you've been there on the, on the coast of Oregon. It's the number one tourist attraction in Oregon. Um, but the year before the pandemic kind of, uh, scaled back operations there, we, um, we, we had 1.4 million people visit us, uh, in that year. So a lot of people visit us. So a lot of people have a really tangible experience with the brand, uh, but also because of the, the, the long history in the Pacific Northwest and the deep, broad relationships we have with consumers there, it's also very, a very, was a very nostalgic brand. So what we sought to do beginning in 2014 and then have continued to do with the national expansion is to kind of um, update in a way that makes us sort of more culturally relevant and is interesting for consumers that don't have that n- nostalgic connection to the brand, but at the same time building on what you know what what was already there and and what was already strong and 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 not deviating from the things that people loved about us in the west after you know decades and generations of experiencing the product how do you tangibly update nostalgia well so um the a big turning point for our growth strategy was in 2014 um w- when we went out with uh much bolder uh marketing and so the reason we did that we felt like it was important to cause people to sort of, frankly, notice the dairy category and and notice that there are some interesting things there. We also, um, because of the tight geographic distribution of the business, um, we had fallen into a bit of a pattern of over-promoting the product and kind of price discounting in order to drive volume in the same geography with very high penetration and very high shares. And so what we sought to do was to sort of reset in some ways, the way retailers and consumers saw our brand, at, and s- that they saw would see it as an opportunity to, um, you know, offer a and an access f- from the consumer standpoint an everyday premium product. So yeah, I'm going to pay a little bit more for it, but it's it's there's a lot more care that goes into producing it, and as a result, the quality's there, and so I'm more I'm willing to to make to pay for that. But to reset that. We, we needed to do some kind of, uh, you know, brand communications that kind of reset the way people thought about the category. So in 2014, we launched this Dairy Done Right campaign, uh, which has had very, you know, kind of stark imagery, black backgrounds, chainsaws cutting ice cream cartons open, pitchforks through cheese, axes chopping through cheese. And, and so, sort of get folks to say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on in this category and with this brand? Maybe there's something more to this category than – uh, you know, daisies and fields and cows frolicking around and the, the, the usual imagery that was being used. And that really was uh, re- really some kind of a pivotal, pivotal moment in resetting 
the market's uh, you know, kind of perception and interaction with our brand and frankly with the category. We followed that up with a with another campaign where we were literally blowing up products, uh, highly processed foods, saying, you know, there's a different way uh, to make food. There's a different amount of care that can go into that. And you have different choices in our category and, and in others. And so um, really those those couple of early campaigns kind of reset uh, how the brand was perceived in the marketplace and helped us as we, you know, kind of changed our go-to-market strategy from, you know, how many pounds can I sell in a tight geographic area to how can I make this broader offering of higher quality everyday uh, dairy products across multiple categories across the nation in a way that folks are willing to pay a little bit more for because they understand who we are and, and what we're about and 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 the amount of care and energy that goes into making the product uh, that results in this sort of premium taste and eating experience. Correct me if I'm wrong, but dairy is a really interesting category because I feel like there's a very specific regional pride and storytelling with every company. So, you know, I knew Telemuk going to school in Oregon, but I grew up um, in Massachusetts and like Cabot is a very like big part of the national pride we have there. And so, and I feel like there aren't many other categories where you sort of, and I think it probably has to do with agriculture and the farms and you can say you quote unquote know the cows or something like that. Do you believe that that's true, that dairy is unique in that way? And and how do you try to sort of weave in that kind of brand storytelling so that you can bolster that kind of pride into it. I do think dairy is different in, in terms of the, the the maybe the transparency of the supply chain and and what some of the companies not not all in the dairy industry but some have in terms of this uh, cooperative structure and and direct relationship back to the farm. So you mentioned Cabot is a cooperative. We're a cooperative. And so what we like to do, what we like to think about is that we shorten the distance between consumers and agriculture in an important way as a cooperative. And so, um, you know, we talk about the ownership of the business, you know, as the chief executive officer of Tillamook County Creamery Association, I report directly to a board made up entirely of farmers. Uh, the farmers that supply the milk to the business own the business. And so, and they're most of them multi-generational members of the of the association, of the, of the cooperative. And so they have a very long-term view and we also um, think it's really important um, as consumers, all of us as consumers have gotten really far away from where our food comes from and the agriculture that's fundamental to putting food on the table. How do we play an important role in, in shortening that distance and providing more connection and transparency there? So in that regard, certainly largely due to the prevalence of cooperatives in, this, in the dairy categories, uh, it is unique. You mentioned that 2020 was an anomalous year, and I think that was, you know, worldwide. We can all say pr quite, quite certainly. But talk to me, sort of, what you experienced as a company. You said you saw with more people eating at home, you saw demand spikes. Were people, were there certain areas that people were buying more than before, and what sort of supply chain? bottlenecks. I feel like there, there might have been some, there's a, there are a lot of issues with, with companies that I've talked with. And so I'd love to hear just sort of what you had to, what you had to handle. Yeah, there certainly were a lot of challenges in this last year, but a lot of opportunity for us to play an important role in, in, in making sure the food supply 
stayed there and reliable for folks as they went to the grocery store. We all remember those panic days in March and April of 2020 where people were worried we were going to run out of food. And I was actually interviewed a couple of times saying, look, this is an amazing food system. We're going to put food on the table. And that played out. I mean, if you went to the grocery store looking for something and it wasn't there, you go the next day and it was probably there. The retailers did an amazing job. Food manufacturers did an amazing job. And agriculture was there uh, to help help the country. But if you rewind back to, you know, March and April of 2020 for us, we were looking at the situation saying there's a lot of uncertainty and demand. There were some serious supply chain risks and challenges in terms of getting the the, the raw materials and other ingredients we need, keeping our factories operating. Back then, the, the um, you know, the meat processing plants were closing. They were, that was getting a lot of publicity. And we made a very intentional decision to say, we're going to continue to meet this demand. We're going to do everything we can to get ahead of these risks and challenges um, and keep our people safe and keep our factories running and keep the milk flowing from our farms and get food out to retailers, partner closely with retailers to get food on the shelf. And so we, we certainly saw a big spike in demand. The kinds of things, you know, cheese definitely, uh, cheese consumption definitely was up. Some of the more indulgent products, you know, depending on where we were in the cycle of this last year and the pandemic, you know, ice cream did amazing for mu- much of it. Some of the out of out of home consumption products, like we have snacking uh, kits and snacking cheese, those things didn't do quite as well. Yogurt didn't fare quite as well because that tends to be a sort of out of home consumption, um, you know, kind of category. Or you might bring it to work or whatever. So we we definitely saw people, you know, cooking more at home, certainly eating more at home, um, experimenting with ingredients, um, you know, using buying our cheese to to bake different things and make different recipes that they hadn't made before. And so we, you know, we wanted to be there for folks as as that happened. And um, the re- retailers did a really amazing job of dealing with the fluctuations in demand and complexity of the supply chain. And we had, um, you know, our supply chain team and, and purchasing teams had daily meetings uh, and work deeply with our supply chain. For example, if if we can't get salt, we can't make cheese, no matter how much milk we have. And so that we can't, can't run out or we can't, we don't have hand sanitizer for the factories or we don't have, um, you know, packaging to put the cheese in or to put the ice cream in, you know, or the inclusions that go in the, the, the chocolate peanut butter ice cream or whatever it happens to be, then we can't make those products. And so we worked very deeply with our supply chain to make sure that they were taking the same precautions and, and risk mitigation strategies that we were taking. And, you know, it, it, it played out pretty well for us as a business. We also felt like it was very important that, you know, as we del- were intentional and deliberate about the success that we wanted to create and the the role that we wanted to play in, in feeding, helping to feed the country, we also realized that if we were going to prosper as a, biz- as a business when so many others weren't, that we wanted to be there for our communities and be there for other businesses. So we made those commitments early as well um, in order to make sure that while we prospered as a business, that we also um, were, were supporting those that were less fortunate uh, during that last year. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. What were those commitments? Like, what are, like how, how do you approach doing both of those things, prospering as a business and then saying we're going to give back? What, yeah, walk me through that. So last spring when we kind of saw what was developing and while we knew there was lots of risk to our business, but we were intentional about saying we're going to be successful here, we committed $4 million uh, to the communities, employees, and other stakeholders to ensure that 
um, well, well, if, if we're able to do well as a business, we will support our community. And we made that commitment, not knowing exactly how it would play out because we didn't know where, uh, you know, federal support dollars were going to go, where the need was going to be. As it turns out, we did a range of things from direct support of, um, organizations that were helping to feed people, helping to provide, um, support for folks that were, lo- that were struggling with things like housing. Um, but we also um, provided uh, grants that we were able to get matching from state and federal, um, you know, or, or, uh, state and federal funds to match um, for small businesses. So, for example, we had a program where in our so Tillamook is the name of our company, but it's also the name of the town in the county where we operate. And so we were able to provide direct grants to businesses that were struggling due to the pandemic in our in our local community in the town of Tillamook. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys became a B Corp this past year. Is that correct? We did. We're very proud to join that that community of, of, of other B Corps and great companies that, that are also a part of that community. What put you over the edge to say, we're going to do this? What, like, what was sort of the thought process behind codifying that? Yeah. And I like the way you asked that question because, you know, well, certainly we've learned a lot from the B Corp process and there were some adjustments we made. We felt like the way we were doing business fit very well with um, the way B Corp, um, you know, what B Corp was looking for and what B Corp certification required. We also felt like by joining that community, we would be pushed to continue the progress that we were making in terms of the way we were operating our business. So that was a, that was a main motivator. I mean, certainly we, we'd like to be recognized and, and be part of this overall community of amazing companies that are B Corps. But we also wanted to join um, this community that would help to continue to push us to, to make progress in, in creating stakeholder value and considering all of our stakeholders as we run the business. What did you do on the marketing front over the last year? Because I feel like for a company that's a staple, you sort of you're in high demand. People are going to find you if you're in stock in the grocery stores. But you also, you know, brand messaging is a is an interesting thing. And you have to be very, very careful with that. So how did you sort of approach the overall market marketing campaigns? Where were what channels were you focusing on just and especially since you were focusing on uh, national expansion as well? How, how do you how do you walk that tightrope? Yeah, so we um, we definitely pivoted a bit as the as the pandemic and the shutdown and the economic challenges and everything developed last year. Um, and so while we would, uh, we, our intention was initially to sort of introduce the brand nationally, um, in a, in a kind of a more sort of eye catching kind of attention grabbing sort of way, uh, we shifted a bit to what we call our, our values driven campaign. And what we did is sort of s- exposed the company, um, how we do things, uh, who we are, where we come from. Um, this concept that that resonates with us and has for decades and decades about you know doing it right, doing the right thing, um, and so we we the campaign that we uh, that we launched last year um, really it actually featured our employees. So they they did an amazing job. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I thought we're going to lose some of these folks to um you know to careers in acting. But uh we we went out into our factory and onto our trucks and um and out worked walked with the cheesemakers and 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 featured our employees and said, "Look, this is who we are. Uh we'd like you to get to know us." Um we have certainly also, as we've expanded nationally with, you know, as a relatively, you know, small company compared to most of the competitors, we've had to look for ways to be highly personalized. And so those, um, you know, marketing channels where we can target folks that are interested in us and where we can 
tell our story most deeply and invite them into learning more about us are the ones that we we've kind of focused on over this last year. I mean, you know, go you know, being a, a regional brand expanding nationally is a, is a, an expensive proposition, obviously, and so we want to get the most out of our marketing dollars. Um, and make sure that our story storytelling reaches the most most people. So, what are those channels that you're finding are most personalized that national audiences are responding to? I mean, certainly the certainly the digital channels, um, you know, social media and, and other digital channels. Um, that also, you know, we lever we partner with our retailer programs, especially as as um, you know, online purchases are are ex- have accelerated over this last year, and everyone still, especially on the on the uh, fresh produce side and 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 uh, perishable product side, retailers are sort of figuring that out. Uh, what, what's the what's the revenue model there? Um, how do they offer products that are most relevant for the consumers? And so we we've begun to uh, partner there more as well. But the, our opportunity through um, digital, social, and our retail partnerships provide us the kind of best opportunity for us to um, access access those people that are most interested in learning more about us. One thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is you talked, you know, their digital digital advertising and then more people buying their groceries online. And I've read about and spoken to a few different people who see uh, apps like Instacart as kind of the next sort of uh, retail re, uh, retail marketing or it's not the next it's here. Like that's where a lot of retail marketing is. And so how how are you approaching the, you know, such a big app? Is that is that the same as all of your other digital campaigns? Are you you know, do you is that? Do you do that more on the retailer by retailer basis, or is Tillamook itself focusing on you know marketing within an app like Instacart as well? Yeah, well, we're doing both. I mean, certainly, um, you know, retailers will play a really significant retailers and their own programs will play a really significant part in the market going forward. But um, we're certainly doing both as as this market develops, and again, as everyone sort of figures out how to best market perishable products while at the same time offering the most relevant uh, kind of choice set for consumers based on their past experiences. And, you know, it, um, we see it as con- as developing. And so we're, we look for ways to partner, um, particularly on the retailer side, but and to participate with the with the broader, uh, you know, platforms as those develop as well. Have you guys ever considered and I imagine it if you did, it'd be very difficult doing anything on the DTC front just because it's perishable. I'm sure that's that makes for a very difficult kind of logistics process as opposed to working with huge retailers. But is that something that's ever crossed your mind or is it you're just, no, we're doing the, the retail way? No, we, we actually have a, a small D2C um, you know, program. Uh, we've actually sold direct-to-consumer, I mean, of course, in, in our visitor center where people come and visit yeah. our factory, you know, a million-plus <laughs> people come visit our factory. And we actually opened a, uh, a small uh, market, what we call marketplace in the Portland airport as our sort of first foray out of that visitor center into retail. Um, I don't anticipate that we'll expand broadly in retail, but um, – uh, online, we actually have sold product, you know, but it's been sort of like, you know, you you can access us and order something through a, a sort of a rudimentary website, and then somebody at the visitor center will pack it up in the back room and ship it to you. And we've refreshed that more recently and, and seen a nice little lift. I mean, it's a really small part of our business, but there are some products, for example, like fresh cheese curds that we don't sell at retail that people can access. And we we, we offer some unique you know, 10-year-age uh, cheddars and some other products that way and direct-to-consumer. 
another marketing question and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, is, I, I think I found this article and I found it, you know, it made me smile, but that Tillamook is the official dairy provider for Top Chef this, this season. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah. Um, certainly one of them on, on the butter we yeah. are. Yeah. I love Top Chef. And when I saw it was in Portland, which is where I went to college, that made me very happy. But like, um, when you, when you're a, a, a big brand and you're featured on a show like that, sort of like, how do you approach that? Are you seeing sales lift as a, as a result of, of being featured on these TV shows? How, how does that work out? Yeah, so um, we certainly like to partner uh, with chefs. Uh, generally, we have a lot of partnerships that we've developed with chefs throughout the country over the years mm-hmm. um, with particular restaurants. Uh, fun fact, we're actually the number one menu mentioned uh, brand in the United huh. States on restaurants. Um, people, uh, you know, uh, burger shops and sandwich shops tend to like to, to mention us, which we very much appreciate and enjoy that. Um, but so we, we have a long history of partnering with chefs. So the Top Chef partnership seem, seems very natural. Hard to say on the on the on the lift, um, you know, certainly we, we like to, we like to be associated with, you know, the amazing chefs, uh, on top chef. I mean, our butter business is up 60% year over year. So it's kind of hard to tell, uh, how much of that is, uh, is due to the fact that it, you know, we're, we're thrilled that it's been being featured, uh, on top chef. And I'm sure it has something to do with it, but it's kind of hard to tell when we're in this, uh, you know, really, I mean, volatile and unpredictable demand situation. I mean, you know, particularly butter has been one of those categories that's really done well during the during the time when people are at home more. Yeah, because I bet that they've all been baking. And I remember there was actually a run in my grocery store where there was only salted butter. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Um, so I, I found I find that fascinating, uh, the idea that you're the most mentioned uh, uh, brand. And that makes sense. I can think of like uh, a, either like a cheese plate where it says Tillamook cheddar or, you know, uh, a burger that says it has, you know, Tillamook cheddar cheese or things like that. How do you, is that was that just sort of an, or, an organic thing that's happened where people people are mentioning specifically the name or is that something that you have like you've tried to foster with your chef relationships to make make the cheese associated with the company that's making it? You know, it's both really, but mostly it's organic. I mean, we certainly uh, actively seek out partnerships that can result in us being mentioned mentioned on a menu, um, but. That mostly it's it's organic and unexpected often um we you know I, I i personally get pictures all the time somebody's eating in a restaurant in north carolina or texas or wisconsin or whatever and they say look uh, uh, on the menu there you are and and or on an airplane and they and they see it in a in an offering there on an airplane and um i i always you know we're, we're always thrilled to see that um you know we still at heart are a a small town company based on based on the coast of Oregon, and to know that our products are out there uh, all over these places and people are experiencing them is a big thrill, and that and that's a very big thrill for our our farmers as well. I mean, the we we share weekly actually we share the amazing fan feedback that we get uh, with them in an email, and, uh, and and they're always thrilled to read that. And a lot of times it's it involves, hey, I found you at this this you know my favorite burger joint or the sandwich shop when I was traveling or whatever, and. It's always fun to hear that. So what's the focus for the year to come? It seems like some of the hiccups are kind of subsiding. People, Things are reopening, but of course, nothing's back to normal. So how are you approaching this as a dairy company in terms of production and marketing and all of the things in between? Yeah, there's certainly still a lot of unknowns about the coming year. I mean, of course, uh, we're just now starting to overlap those heavy purchase months. And so the first couple of months of this year, uh, our business was way up. The categories were way up still. And we've seen a you know, double 
digit decline across our categories in the last four weeks. So, um, you know, as we start to overlap the year over year, we're still anticipating that overall demand will be higher than it was in 2019, but a significant but potentially double digit drop into 2020 for the categories overall. Uh, we're a growth brand and we're continuing to gain new distribution and to make sure that uh um, that we can sell through that distribution and keep it. And so we're very focused on introducing, um, you know, consumers to to our brand and deepening the relationship with consumers uh, fundamentally by exposing who we are and what we stand for and what we're up to. So, you know, certainly on the operations side, there's a lot of uncertainty. We've got, you know, extra inventory that we built, not knowing what demand is going to be, um, sort of managing through that. Um, you know, we've, we're running extra production and, and um, you know, at, at the same time, you know, we've got hundreds of people working in our factories and, and they're, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can. They're still working under pretty significant restrictions and protocols to keep them safe um, so that we don't, you know, transmit the virus within the factories. And so still dealing with a lot of uncertainty in the year and while at the same time um, continuing our, our eastward uh, push uh, to – to become relevant in more markets across the country. Sorry, just one more question because I, I find this fascinating. Are you just as a, a CEO who's looking at financial planning, is just 2020 as a frame of reference out the window now? You're just like, you know, it was just so weird and difficult. Like you're going to see drops year over year 2020, but 2019 is a, is a better sort of vantage point by which you're going to look, look at your comparisons? You know, there's some of that going on, but we do think that that some of the at-home consumption behavior and certainly online purchase behavior that we that we saw accelerated in 2020 will linger into 21 and maybe even be somewhat permanent. And so, for example, uh, many of us who spent a lot of time working from home over the last year have figured out that we we can actually do that quite productively and you know m- many companies uh, including ours will return to this sort of hybrid model where folks will be working from home a couple of days and that sort of changes the consumption pattern in a way that is likely to be somewhat permanent and so we, we've done a lot of analysis around what do we think 2020 will look like but we also have to be really well prepared to pivot quickly uh, and adjust to um, you know how it develops. I mean, we we've got you know some markets that are mostly fully open, and some that are you know still pretty closed. And w- what is the consumption behavior happening in each of those, and how are we monitoring that and partnering with our retail partners to make sure we're we're meeting demand but not overstocking and overshipping? Um, it's still quite a quite a dynamic situation. Patrick, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Kale. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.